welcome to Wham Bam Tram's Summer Podcast. So we're normally on RTHK Channel 7, but RTHK gave us the summer off. Well, let me tell you what happened last time I took a vacation. I went to see my parents in Dorset in the UK. Within almost hours of arriving, I'd found that the local bus company had axed the bus route into town and that a group of volunteers were trying to buy their own bus to run a Saturday service. Great story, they eventually bought this bus from the council for one pound. Anyway, for me, that's dream vacation. Finding a good transport story about buses. So here we are, it's a labor of love. We're here for the summer with stories covering transport technology, the waste bill, climate change, urban development, electric buses, road safety, Kitec. Perhaps we'll take a trip on the new water taxi. So welcome, please share this, transitjam.com forward slash wambamtram. The links to the radio show and the podcast are all there. And we're running five shows fortnightly from July to September before we pick up again with RTHK until the end of the year. And today, to kick off this inaugural podcast, we have a wonderful guest, someone I've talked to many times before and probably needs no introduction, Christine Lowe is in the studio. So I'm here with Christine Lowe, who is Chief Development Strategist at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, although of course I'm sure we all remember her as the former Undersecretary for the Environment, uh, LegCo Councillor, co-founder of Civic Exchange, many other things. And Christine's in the studio with us here, fresh from quarantine stretch, so uh, very happy to see her out and about. Hi James. Hi, welcome Christine. Thank you. So we have a lot to talk about. I think uh, one of your sort of pet passions these days is uh, zero waste. And I think there's, uh, we were talking about how we could possibly get some transport angles out of this. I think there's, you know, there's so many transport angles. Um, let's start with waste and food waste. And how do we clean up the transport and logistics around food waste? Okay, well, I think food waste is something that really resonates with ordinary people. And, um, uh, but well, because I think we all waste food, to be honest, yeah. and uh, living in Hong Kong, we are used to seeing massive amounts of food being, you know, not used. So my passion is just to remind people that you and I can actually do something about this because we cook at home, we buy food, we go out and eat, we order food, we can be more judicious, you know, when we do things like that. We, we go to establishments, you know, restaurants and hotels and so on. And many places we are regular patrons. Mm. And I think sometimes it's quite useful to say things like, oh, are you recycling? Or can I have a doggy bag? Or, oh, well, make sure uh, I, I don't want to f uh, waste food. You know, I mean, these things are the sort of things where I think it, it, it people support, but we're not doing it properly. So I think we can definitely start campaigns. But the last thing I want to say at this stage is, I do think in the next few years, you're going to see massive campaigns around the world about reducing food waste. China has obviously made this uh, a real commitment to food waste. So you think that's going to trickle into Hong Kong? Well, actually, we started it in Hong Kong mm. in 2013. Hong Kong actually put together quite a decent uh, food waste reduction campaign. And the government started this because, well, after all, about a third of Hong Kong's municipal solid waste, that's 3,600 tons a day, is actually food waste. And the food waste isn't just what you and I throw away, you know, from our dining table, but actually it includes the food waste that comes from markets, supermarkets, doing transport. I mean, you know, food that 
maybe have gone past their sell-by date or close to their sell-by date. So the amount of food waste we waste is 3,600 tons a day. So if we can even just reduce that by 40%, you know, Mm. that's really a lot. So the question is, we all need to collaborate. We all need to raise our awareness to know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. So that's a staggering number, really. And what percentage of that is individual food waste and what percentage is the markets or the supermarkets? Do you have any figures on that? Well, I think uh, that the majority really comes from the industrial and commercial sector. So again, what you and I throw away at home, for example, is relatively small. But let's not forget that Hong Kong, the Hong Kong cultures, we eat out a lot. Mm. So unlike perhaps the culture of many other places outside Hong Kong, where people essentially have most of their meals indoor, Hong Kong people are famous for eating out. So actually a part of the commercial and industrial side is, you know, complementing yeah. the fact that we are a go out and eat culture. Yeah, yeah. And just to clarify for international listeners, that, that's not because we're sort of so rich and fancy. It's more like, presumably, we all have small kitchens and it's much easier and cheaper often to go out and eat out. Well, if you are a very small family, if you're one or two people, very often it's cheaper to eat out. Yeah. And secondly is we have a tradition uh, in Chinese culture where family like to gather over mm. the weekends. And uh, not everybody goes to expensive restaurants. You know, a lot of people gather and go to, uh, you know, quite uh, run-of-the-mill eateries and sit around the table and do yum cha, right? You yeah. know, um, uh, and, and that's a tradition. So people eat out, you know, at night after work. They don't go home and cook. They, they eat somewhere, some fast food before they go home. That's just part of the culture. Yeah, yeah. I've been working for Food Panda in the evenings and uh, I don't see really much effort by restaurants to, to or, or the company itself to really limit the amount of food waste. It's still huge orders of food. They're still stuffing it with plastic cutlery and, and napkins and whatnot. And the amount of food that's being ordered um, by, by these platforms is huge. And I wonder if that's actually going to increase our food waste problem. Well, what I very much like to add to this discussion, which we didn't have actually in 2013, yeah. and it was a three-year campaign, was the fact that during COVID, people are doing ordering in takeout so much more. Mm. So obviously, you know, there's been sort of like a surge of this kind of takeout food. And people have to think about how to package the food and how to deliver the food. And perhaps we're just going for, you know, the, the, the road of least resistance. So mm. we just buy whatever is there. I mean, we're still using styrofoam in Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, I mean, people are now coming up with better packaging, not with plastic, but with paper products. But nevertheless, there's a lot of it. And you do have to think about keeping things warm. You do have to think about uh, hygiene. Um, but we haven't really quite thought about and how do we reduce the waste that is involved? You know, we're just catching the ride of this growth of the the delivery business. Yeah, and that's what I see is it's just a crazy, crazy ride. And if I go to a restaurant, there's all sorts of beautiful things the app does to try and time the food. And we're supposed to use these bags and whatnot. But when it comes down to it, it's a busy restaurant throwing things into a bag and off it goes. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I like to think that if we were doing the campaign again, right, if Hong Kong was doing the campaign again, there'll be one bit of extra... Um, uh, knowledge that we would add, which is the takeout business. Mm. Because actually, if if you go online, if people are interested about food waste reduction, um, you can go into the um, steering committee for food waste, uh, the campaign, and you can find 
all sorts of really useful booklets, you know, for schools because schools serve meals.、Mm. So how can they reduce food waste?、Uh, obviously, F and B, you know, restaurants and hotels and markets and so on. So there are all these different types of you could say food type of establishment where、mm. you're serving food or you're cooking food.、Uh, how to reduce food? So you know, the next one really ought to be the、um, uh, the food delivery. The fast food business,、mm, sure, and the transport side of the、uh, well of the food waste. So three thousand six hundred tons being transported every day. What's the carbon cost of that? Well, I mean, a lot of the food waste is just lumped in with everything else.、Mm. Um, there's been a tremendous collection、uh, effort. It's still kind of really trial because you need to get food to take it to. We now have one food waste. Plant, which is on Lantau Island,、mm-hmm. uh, it can eat up two hundred tons a day, and you know two hundred tons doesn't sound like much when we have three thousand six hundred tons of food waste a day, but two hundred tons of food waste on its own, right, without other rubbish, and it, it's actually quite a lot. So you need you need to get to a stage where you can collect two hundred tons of food waste a day, deliver it there so that it can process it and actually produce energy.、Mm. Um, and that's not been easy because you need to to you, you need to go to industry、uh, and to commercial、uh, enterprises and see how to collect that food. Yeah, yeah. And is there a clean way to collect that? Because what I would imagine is it will be the same old big diesel trucks that collect the、uh, the garbage. Well, if you can,、uh, well, that's all we have right now,、yeah. to be honest, right? All big trucks、mm. are uh, uh, powered by by diesel.、Mm. Now, obviously, we have a relatively clean diesel in Hong Kong, and until sometime in the distant future, when we have trucks that are powered by clean energy, it's probably going to be diesel. But in any case.、Um, Uh, we do want to get the food waste to the plant where you can produce some clean energy. Right. So you think that's more important than sort of keeping those trucks off the road? I mean, ideally, we'd reduce the food waste to nothing, but that's probably not likely, is it? Well, I think the reality today is that we need trucks of all kinds to move big things around. Yeah. And today, the trucks that are commercially available are powered by diesel. Yeah.、Um, it, it, I, Around the world, people are looking at developing trucks, you know, big vehicles、uh, that can be powered by some clean energy. But that's not very prevalent, so you can't go and buy this and run it in Hong Kong yet. Yeah, yeah. There's not the、uh, the system to run a double decker bus or a, a heavy. Not yet. It, yeah. Not yet. Yeah.、Yes. Okay. Looking at the the waste business, not just food waste, but it seems like a very badly run system in Hong Kong.、Uh, would you Would you agree with that? Well,、um, people are not happy with the system because it seems so bitty,、um, and people contrast what happens in Hong Kong with well-developed systems, like in Europe and in Japan. People talk about systems in Tai Taipei City and in Seoul,、uh, and yes, they're more advanced than we are. But there is one good piece of news on the table, because if you asked me this time last year whether I was Optimistic in Hong Kong passing、um, the new legislation that will charge for municipal solid waste,、mm. I would say were、well, a bit dicey because the people in the Legislative Council didn't seem to want to support it.、Uh, but today,、um, it seems like Legco is prepared to pass the bill, and without making waste more commercially viable to be recycled 
it just ain't going to happen. Mm. So this is a, 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 a good piece of news that, you know, could happen quite soon. If you've just jumped into this, this is James Ogenden, editor of Transit Jam, talking to former Undersecretary for the Environment and founder of Civic Exchange, Christine Lowe. I do have a, I, I wonder about this waste bill because what we have in mid-levels is a lot of illegal dumping. It's simply garbage is just dumped on the streets by apartment buildings, not the bigger ones, which tend to be more responsible, but the, you know, the normal apartment building of 15 floors or so will just dump it on the street. Uh, that's horrible. Yeah. You know, that's, um, that's not only unlawful, you know, yeah. that's really socially very, um, uh, very bad. And I would say that um, those people need to be called out. Yeah. And, you know, it is, I'm afraid, the government's job to do so. Right. Because the government, I mean, I'm one of the campaigners on Cane Road that has been pointing out this to FEHD for years, and they just haven't done anything. They've failed completely to stop this from the same people at the same time every night dumping on the street. I, I mean, I, I think probably, you know, people who live there, you, you pretty much know what happens regularly to mm. certain buildings. And if the government really wanted to go and uh, stop this kind of practice, they can. Yeah. Um, and for some reason, they haven't yeah. because they don't want to. Yeah, because I feel it, it's a sort of light touch regulation. And what's happened is there's almost like a quasi legalized uh, dumping area now because the government sends in a truck every day to clear it. So well, they've supported it. Well, that's right. Mm. And, you, you, you know, we have that kind of problem in many cities, right? You know, certain things are unlawful, uh, but if you kind of let it happen, and in a place like Hong Kong, where we have very narrow streets um, and very high density, and obviously people are concerned about sanitation and mm. hygiene, well, you can't leave rubbish on the roadside, right? You know, because then you have all kinds of problems. Mm. So the, the the government will do the easy bit, which mm. is to use taxpayers' money to send a truck there to take it away. But you haven't really solved the problem of what's the problem with that particular building as to why they're not doing something. And if they're not doing something, is it structural within their building or is it just bad practice? Certainly those uh, those garbage trucks are rather annoying because they're very dirty and they're very noisy and they're, uh, they, they tend to come at four o'clock in the morning, so. Well, know. the government had uh, made effort to clean them up because um, the last thing people wanted to see, and you know, there was lots of public complaints in, in the time that I was in government, that you, you, have a, you, you have a rubbish truck driving along and there is kind of a uh, uh, drip, 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 mm -hmm. juice, right? Rubbish yeah, juice rubbish coming juice. out of it, yes. <laughs> yeah. So actually the government came up with uh, subsidies for people who are in that business to retrofit their their trucks so that this wouldn't happen. Now you're sort of out of government a while now. What Since you left uh, undersecretary, your undersecretary post, what, have you been happy with the way that your successors have taken Hong Kong's environment forward? Well, I think what I, one thing that I am happy with is that finally this waste bill is going to get passed. Yeah. Because on the waste front, um, my greatest concern for this current government was that they weren't going to be able to do that, not because they didn't want to and not because they weren't going to work hard enough for it, but somehow people in LegCo did want to do it because of all kinds of, I, I think, uh, reasons that I don't have a lot of time for. Mm. But now that they're going to be able to pass this before the next administration, because uh, the, there will be a change of administration at the end of June of next year, uh, I'm very happy about that. Mm. And I'm sure they're very happy about that. 
But of course, uh, it will be a period of time before the system really kicks in, and there'll be lots of kinks and you, you know things to work out so that the system is there. Everybody understands it. Everybody understands they've got to do it, uh, and you know they've got to enforce it. Yeah. So before before the new administration, we still have some time left on the on the current LegCo administration. What do you think else they could achieve in terms of environment? Well, what the government has said is that they're going to do something very important. Um, sometime in the summer, they're going to put out a new plan on um, climate change. And climate change is one of those things that has actually impact on pretty much everything that we do. Hopefully, the new plan will have more commitments, so we'll know more about how they're going to deal with um energy saving, you know, energy saving in buildings. We're going to know more about um, maybe longer term energy supply. How how will Hong Kong get cleaner energy supply? Uh, it will have inevitably to be a part of the Chinese system uh, because that's where, you know, a lot of the energy sources are. So it will be very important when we see this uh, new proposal. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a lot of uh, discord on that already that uh, there's certain sections of the community don't want to import nuclear energy from China, for example. Well, I find that very strange because actually nuclear power has been you know, it is a technology that is mature, and it is a technology that, if you look at the the research, that it's worth doing. And of course, I think nuclear power has had a bad name for a long time because of Chernobyl and Fukushima and so on. But actually, people in Europe and America are beginning to have a new look at nuclear power because it is a clean source of power. It's a well-known um, uh, technology. Yes, there are waste problems, but there are waste problems with other types of energy. I mean, there are other problems with with uh, fossil fuels, and uh, and if you're even making uh, wind power and solar power, yeah. you know, you you need to mine a lot of uh, rare earths and so on. So nothing is a complete free ride, and perhaps nuclear power needs uh, you know needs some kind of a revival. And Hong Kong can buy nuclear power from southern China. Looking at the electricity and the fuel mix behind that, and then EVs, EVs obviously only make sense if the electricity itself is green. Where are we with that? I have asked the government how much electricity, for example, it predicts EVs will use in five years, in 10 years. And they're very cagey about that. I think think it's probably because it's not that easy to uh, calculate. Now, I mean, if you're looking at how many EVs there are in Hong Kong today, I mean, there's still relatively few. I don't know what's the number today, but it's probably under 20,000. So if we were to say, okay, in five years time, what might it be? Um, I I think the government is looking at it won't grow until it provides more infrastructure, which is why the government's plan to popularize electric vehicles, which which came out a few months ago, their emphasis is let's build the charging and the and the you know relevant infrastructure to provide for that mm. and then EVs can grow now the other thing i think they did that was useful is you know any kind of incentive has to be your only car right you're replacing your car with an EV yeah. rather than allow hong kong to uh, add more cars yeah. Um, so, so I think that was a good adjustment to make. And then they said, right, they're going to phase out conventional vehicles yeah. uh, by a certain time. By so I think that's that's yeah. that's good too. Yeah, but the one for one scheme isn't actually a, it's not a forced one for one. It's like you can 
you can otherwise you don't get the subsidy right yes yeah so yes, so but the subsidy is actually quite attractive right. so if you're just a one car family yeah um you know that's that's probably where the incentives lies yeah yeah okay okay how about the development of other transport in hong kong like uh, bicycles uh, cargo bikes these sort of things which we see in europe i'm not sure if you see them too much you see them certainly in new york city uh, do you think that's something we could push for in hong kong I think the traditional argument has always been um, we don't have the road space and we in, in the middle of the city, uh, in the densest part of Hong Kong, uh, we can't have a bicycle lane. Now, some people would argue that, well, actually, if you prioritize that, then you can. It just makes it harder for other vehicles. And that's a good thing because then you don't want to give cars or something the priority. Uh, I, I suspect the uh, uh, the people in government thinks that there is also a safety issue. I mean, these are the the usual yeah. reasons that are that are brought up. Uh, but I think for Hong Kong, uh, frankly, the ones that we really need to focus on are the public transport vehicles. Mm. So we already have the MTR, which is powered by electricity. We have a, buses still carry, I think, more people in Hong Kong than even the MTR. Having buses that are cleaner is very important. And Hong Kong has the biggest double-decker buses in the world. Mm. So ours are, I think, at least a third bigger than the ones in London. Yeah. And many cities don't have double-decker buses. So today, you can't go and just buy a fleet of double-decker buses that is, let's say, electric, yeah. um, which means that for Hong Kong, we have to work much harder to work with a, a, a supplier yeah. to really develop ones for us. And that's that's expensive. Mm. But maybe people are now saying, well, may, maybe maybe we, we, we don't go for electric. Maybe we go for hydrogen yeah, or something. Yeah. But hydrogen buses are also in development. So I think the thing for Hong Kong is, and you really need the government to work very closely with the bus companies, is to actually say, when are we going to really go for something? Mm. Because until you have a timeline and a target, yeah. you're always just waiting for somebody to develop these buses and you can just go and buy them. Yeah. And that will take the longest time. Yeah. Now, if you want to have, let's say, hydrogen buses earlier rather than later, then you need to work with the bus companies and have uh, some kind of new business model that allows you to renew your bus fleet, essentially, yeah. when the new tech and, and work fast to get the technology to trial. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, we had the the Pilot Green Energy, uh, the Pilot Green Transport Fund. Um, was that before your time? At it, it was before my time, yeah. during my time, and yeah. it's still and around. Still going. Yes, yeah, it's, 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 a long, it's a long plan. Yeah. yeah, but it's a long plan, but I always get the impression it's actually just gone on long because it hasn't really achieved what it wanted to achieve. Whereas, uh, you know, it seems like it's not really pushing ahead too far. Well, I think the Hong Kong thinking in government mm. is, Hong Kong is not necessarily the place to develop new technology, right? Now, whether that's right or wrong, right? We just So therefore, the model is, if you want to go and trial some new technology, mm. we will give you some subsidy. Mm. Um, and it works best when there's already uh, ready-made vehicles that you can go and buy. Yeah. Um, now, however, we do have a little bit of a breakthrough with ferries. Yeah. So Hong Kong is now going to work with suppliers to buy uh, electric ferries yeah. for Hong Kong. And, you know, if the plan goes through, my understanding is that this is quite a substantial plan, even by international standard. Yeah. So my, what I'm saying is it can be done, mm. but you'd need to work with the ferry companies, again, to have a new model. 
that's quite exciting that the government would actually almost buy the ferry and then yes. and then run it. Yeah. Right. But that's a new model, right? Yeah. Because yeah. right now that's not how it's done. Yeah. So how are you going to do that with new technologies for public transport? You know, that yeah. means for double decker buses, for mini buses and for taxis. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the difference is there are very good electric ferries in existence. Norway has wonderful yeah. electric ferries. That's right. Um, but That's the buses, right. yeah, and they work the same here, I guess, as they do in Norway. Well, for taxis, for example, right. we, we can go and buy a fleet of electric taxis tomorrow. Yeah. But the way we run our taxis 24 hours a day, uh, taxi fares being very low in Hong Kong, yeah. it'll be very difficult to cover the cost of uh, an electric taxi today. Yeah. So until and unless you have government working with the trade or perhaps have a new policy of thinking about going forward, you know, what kind of taxi service you really want for Hong Kong. You know, we're just treading water here. If you've just jumped into this, this is James Ockenden, editor of Transit Jam, talking to former Undersecretary for the Environment and founder of Civic Exchange, Christine Lowe. Now, of course, the taxi trade is very interesting because it's uh, very uh, strongly controlled by a, a few sort of unions or associations, we could say. I mean, how how would, could we break through that sort of logjam? Well, they probably don't want to hear me say this, but one of the problems with our taxi business is we often run quite old vehicles on the road. This also, our taxis is of a very basic model. I mean, you know, these are things that people complain about. Yes, you don't pay very much for them. And the taxi drivers rent the vehicle like on a half day basis, right? Mm. And share it with somebody. So there's two you know, two segments per day of taxi drivings. They don't earn a lot of money. Um, so in a, in a way, it's one of those systems that I think has come to its final form and it, it is going to go. So the question is, uh, but we never asked this question. For a city like Hong Kong, how many taxi licenses do we really need? How do we envisage uh, the taxi service for Hong Kong should be? How much should we charge for it? Is it going to be always very cheap, or should this be a more premium business? And and what about um, uh, and what about the taxi drivers? You know, uh, and, and then Uber and uh, has come along, and you mm. know, people were upset with Uber. So what I'm saying is, it does clearly require some fundamental rethinking. Yeah. So now we're talking about a new technology. You know, it's talking about digital. We're talking about electric taxis. Uh, I think without really a fundamental rethink of the taxi services in Hong Kong in the longer term, we're never going to get anywhere. Yeah. And this is a vested interest, right? You know, yeah. we need government to talk to the industry and to get the backing of the public to make changes. As many vested interests is a word closely associated with Hong Kong, but do we actually know who the vested interests are? I think so. I mm. think so. I mean, you know, if it's the bus companies, it's the bus companies. Mm. Uh, uh, it, it, because the bus companies are also complaining. They're not actually making money. Uh, they provide actually a really good service, uh, but they can't continue like this. Mm. Oh, now there's going to be a transition to you know new buses. Yeah. Um, and currently Hong Kong has 5,000 buses. So mm. you know what is a realistic plan for thinking about a transition to a new technology, let's say in the next decade, uh, where will the money come from? And uh, uh, these questions have to be thought through by government, and government has to work closely with yeah. the operators. Yeah. Mini buses—that's another. Yeah. You can you can you can get an electric fleet uh, now, but under the current business model, it's not going to happen. I'm wondering where where it went wrong with the taxis. I remember 
I think it was Edward Yao, Environment Minister, stood up at Hong Kong U to give a speech years ago and said, who here thinks Hong Kong is a green city? And I put my hand up and I was the only person putting my hand up. And he asked me why I thought that. And I said, because mainly because the taxis are all LPG, which at the time was quite advanced. And it seems like we had a very good taxi fleet, a very clean taxi fleet. So where did it go wrong? Um, Well, because we didn't think more about the next stage. Mm. Um, that's why I'm zero in in the um, uh, in the business model. Um, Hong Kong stopped giving out taxi licenses uh, some years ago, so you could say you know it's a supply and demand problem. Mm. Uh, if you hold on to a taxi, it's well known. You know it's worth several million dollars, and uh, it's traded. You know it's a trade. The license is tradable. Yeah. So there are elements about the taxi business that very clearly points to where the vested interests are. Mm. So, okay, but, you know, let's not pummel them. Let's say, okay, we know net zero, right? You know, Hong Kong has to uh, has a date with destiny, mm-hmm. and that is by 2050, we're going to be net zero. What role will the public transport trade play? So taxis, minibuses, buses, rail, right? You know, we need to name all of these things. And each one of them requires some kind of plan. And who's going to be responsible for that? Is, is it going to be a five years? We'll maybe see some plan saying there should be a plan. Or Well, public transport has a heavy, heavy government role. Mm. So I don't think in arriving at net zero, uh, I don't think you have a debate actually around the world either. Government uh, leadership is really important. Now, some places uh, it's the public sector, it's the government or the city authorities that own the, let's say, the bus fleet, right? Then they have more flexibility as to what they want to do. Here in Hong Kong, they're privately owned. So how should Hong Kong go about doing this? This is exactly what the government departments needs to be thinking about. Uh, and I hope they are, because at some stage, they're going to be asked... And how is your sector going to transit to become net zero? Mm. What targets and dates do you have? They're going to be asked those tough questions. They're going to be asked those yeah. tough questions very soon. Right, and they better have an answer. Well, at <laughs> least they've got to say to us, I'm now working on right. it. And in 12 months' time, I'm going to come up with a plan. Or they're going to say, well, you know, I've got to come up with a plan. And I'm going to sit down with the uh, relevant stakeholders. And we do have to mm. hammer this out. Yeah. So by the end of this year, you want to hear that said? or I think they should get on with it as soon as possible right. because we already have a date with destiny. Yeah. Uh, the other good thing is this is a date with destiny. Sometime between 2050 and 2060, the world has declared we need to be carbon neutral. Hmm. And as of, I think right now, over 100 jurisdictions, they've either pledged or some have even passed laws, uh, some have made some commitments or some are saying I'm now working on something, right? But a hundred jurisdictions around the world are now sort of saying, okay, 2050, 2060. Yeah. So this is a common date with destiny. Yeah. And it does require governments and business and you know the community, people like you and I, to really be much more serious. So looking at the COVID response, which we've seen around the world, I, I believe that London, Paris, uh, you know, have done so much more in terms of quickly cleaning up transport with COVID as a as a driver than we've seen in Hong Kong. Have we missed an opportunity in Hong Kong there? Well, the thing about Hong Kong is we have a much higher public transport rate. So I, I wouldn't say, I mean, Hong Kong is starting at a very, very high bar. So we now clearly know where we need to go, which is that the 
the, the, the transport sector in terms of decarbonisation has to focus on public transport. Mm. I do want to ask about the car culture because you spend some time in Los Angeles and the US has this tremendous car culture. Although we have a very high public transport ridership, we may have taken our eye off the ball because the number of private cars has grown, as you know, by you know huge amounts in the last 10 years. So is there a danger we, that the cars may have snuck in without anyone noticing? Well, this is a problem that the government admits it doesn't have an answer for. And this is somewhat worrying, right? You know, they are seeing the number of private cars going up, private cars, mm. uh, not, not trucks and buses and so on. Yeah. So it means that somehow people don't think they're adequately served with public transport, even though Hong Kong does so terrifically well with the number of public transport rides every day. So this is an area they need to focus on. I see a lot of my friends who've moved to some of the newer estates in Kai Tak, for example. The default is they buy a car, perhaps because they're not used to the MTR over there, or maybe it's not quite served yet. So that seems to me quite a, a dangerous thing that people moving into the newer areas, they're buying a car. And of course, once you've got a car, it's very hard to give it up. Well, I mean, in Hong Kong, we are spreading out into uh, new areas, mm. such as on Lantau and uh, areas further away in the new territories. Mm. And I think it's natural that people think, well, even if I'm not driving to work every day, I do want a car to drive around uh, at other times. And so people buy a car. Now, the issue is, if you own a car, um, uh, you don't necessarily have to drive it a lot, right? So how can you make sure that driving becomes not your everyday activity like it is in the US. I mean, people drive, they would drive five minutes mm. when they can walk perhaps 15 minutes to go and do something. Yeah, yeah. I've actually got a, uh, we did an interview in Mu Wo a few weeks ago, which is a very sort of 15 minute community. But people are buying cars there too now and they're driving them on the no cars on the no car road and they're just swamping the place. Right. It's very sad to see. Well, you know, people also think about convenience. If mm. they're going to go shopping, you know, going to the supermarket, they want a car rather than to carry everything. I mean, I do understand that. But um, and how does one plan for that? Because people are no longer all living so densely in the old part of town. Mm. Um, I mean, I live on Hong Kong Island. Mm. I live on mid-level. But Hong Kong Island, for example... Uh, is the area where I think population is not rising, mm. uh, but population is rising further out, particularly into the new territories. And let's face it, uh, going into the future, the center of town is moving towards Shenzhen because that's where the activities are going to be. Now, this requires some rethinking in terms of land planning, uh, housing, transport, uh, workspaces, and, and so on. Uh, I like to hear the government and the professionals that are in uh, the built environment really uh, talk a lot more about some of these issues. Mm. Okay. Okay, Christine, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was former Undersecretary for the Environment, Christine Lowe. Thanks, Christine. And the next episode of Wham Bam Tram, we have Julian Kwong. He's a road safety expert advising the UN and World Health Organization. And he'll be talking about Hong Kong's road design, 30 kilometer per hour zones, and some of the problems with Kaitax development. Please bookmark and subscribe to Wham Bam Tram. Visit transitjam.com forward slash Wham Bam Tram for all the show information and archives or find us on Apple, Spotify, or all good podcast platforms. Thanks so much, and until next time, bye-bye.